If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 1. And, um, man, I know that there are some old school people in here. Anybody recognize me? Like, you've been around here for 15 years. Not that I'm important, but uh, it's, uh, it's cool to see. I was curious how many of y'all were left. I didn't know if they kicked y'all out or not, but you're still around. So that is good. Uh, so just, you know, for context, I mean, I, I really do. I, I love this church. Um, there's, I grew up in Dallas, and so there's two churches that have impacted my life greatly, and this is uh, one of them. Um, and so I started coming here when I was a junior in high school, and so I uh, was in the student ministry. If you know the name Craig Godfrey, he was my small group leader. He married me and my wife. Um, and so we just have all these kinds of connections to this place. And so this is where uh, God kind of set my heart on fire in a lot of ways. And then um, me and just it gave me opportunity after opportunity. Like um, when I was in high school is when I felt the call to ministry. And so Mike Holmes, who was the student pastor back in the day, was the person who, man, just out of nowhere allowed me the opportunity to start preaching. And so in high school, I, I preached on this stage a couple of times. And then I became the janitor. And so I have cleaned uh, just about every place you can clean in this building, the bathrooms, y'all redid some stuff, but it's like the same. And so it's, uh, it's reminiscent when I walk in the bathroom and think of how many times I clean those toilets and that's good stuff. And then, um, as you do, you kind of promote people. And so I went from janitor to on the student ministry staff, uh, cause that's just a natural progression. And so I did that. And, um, and so I, I did that for a little over a year, and, uh, and so I just, I, I couldn't say enough about what God has done in my life through this place. And so that's important because, um, I mean, th- this is coming home uh, for me in a lot of ways. And so uh, like Paul, when he would go plant these churches and then he would write these letters, you, you see kind of his heart for some of them um, because he had spent a lot of time and he just invested a lot. And so he loved them and had an affection for them. And so that's kind of how I feel about Dallas Bible Church. I have a huge affection for you. So even if I don't know you, I mean, I want nothing but the best uh, for this place. And so uh, I think of Romans 1 where Paul is writing to Rome and he says that he is eager to preach the gospel there. Um, But before that, he says, man, it was his uh, desire to impart to them some kind of spiritual gift that they might be encouraged. And so that's what I want to do today is I just want to open up God's word. I want to encourage you in, in the ways that I feel the Lord is leading me to encourage you. And I want to watch from far in Austin uh, what God does with this place. And so I'm super grateful for the opportunity. Um, so we're going to pray a little bit. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 1. But I'm going to ask you to pray and just ask God to speak to your heart. And then I'm going to give you a couple other things to pray for. So I'll give you a few seconds. Just however you feel led, pray and ask God to speak to you. And then like most of us, you probably came with some people, so maybe you're sitting by family or friends, or you came by yourself and you're on your own row, but I would love for you to pray for the people around you, whether you know them by name or not, just ask that God would speak to their heart. just because we're in church doesn't mean everyone loves to pray. So would you pray for the person in the room that you probably don't know by name, but maybe for whatever reason they have not felt inclined to pray that God would speak to them. Pray for that person.
So, Father, we just come before you, and um, we want to see you today. And, and, and so I pray that you would be gracious enough to show us who you are. Um, I think of the church in Laodicea and how you said you knock on the door, and if anyone invites you in, you will come and you will dine with them. And so that's our prayer this morning, King Jesus, that you would come into this room, that you would come into our world and into our life, and you would meet intimately with us. I pray, Father, that you would uh, silence every other voice but yours, and that we would hear you, and we would feel you and see you inviting us into something bigger than ourselves. And so, Would you allow us the privilege to be called into deeper waters with you today? And pray for those who have been walking with you for a long time, that you would refresh their heart. And pray for those who maybe haven't been walking with you so long, um, but that you would become more real to them today. So God, would you let, uh, out of your goodness and your grace, just let your kingdom come. Let us um, sense your spirit in the work that you are doing. Pray that Dallas Bible Church uh, would take up the mission that you have for them and they would fulfill whatever that looks like here in Dallas. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so here's what I want to do this morning is I want to invite you into the story that I think Jesus has invited you into. And, And so... Part of why I want to do that is because I, um, I've been fascinated, like a lot of people, with the church in Iran lately. And so the church in Iran is kind of exploding, and that led me into the church in India and other places in the world. And uh, so it got me to look at the world kind of globally, because I can kind of get stuck in my own little bubble, if you will. And so I can kind of think through my context and my lens. And so I kind of wanted to see, man, what is, what is God doing just worldwide? And so you see these disciple-making movements in various parts of the world, but then you also see just a, a lot of what feels like God not doing anything, which we know isn't true. And so I started looking at statistics, and you can go Google these things later um, if you don't believe me. But did you know that today, right now, if Jesus were to come back, that most of the world, United States included, most of the world would spend eternity without him? That, that you and I are living in a day and age when most of the world predominantly does not believe in Jesus, which if you and I are believers in the scriptures like we say we are, that means that they will be in eternity uh, in hell. And so for whatever reason, that shouldn't have been a shock to me, but it was kind of a shock. And I think it was partly a shock because, like I said, I can live in my little bubble, in my little church bubble, and I can know and recognize that people are lost but not really think of the fact that that's the majority of the world right now. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you into the story because my second kind of observation is, is how can that be? How can it be that you and I live in a day and time where there are 40% of the world who doesn't even have access to the gospel? Like, that just seems crazy to me that that's possible. And so I want to kind of get you and I out of the bubble and invite us into the game to solve the problem that I think Jesus has already started to solve. And so to do that, we're going to look at the story of Peter. You and I know Peter as this amazing disciple of Jesus Christ who in the book of Acts begins to preach these messages where people get saved. And I think his first sermon, he had like 3,000 people get saved, right? Like I think maybe one kid ever got saved when I was at Dallas Bible Church. Uh, So like Peter is like the man, right? And so we just see him kind of just following Jesus, making disciples. And so my question that I want to kind of answer with you guys this morning is how did Peter get there? How did he go from being kind of this teenage young man to this guy who's preaching 
preaching sermons and starting movements uh, that affect you and I today, that without people like Peter, you and I would not be here. But how did he get there? My hope is in looking at this, you and I can learn some lessons that we can take and implement in our lives today for the ultimate hope of seeing that the majority of the world would not perish, um, but they would find everlasting life because Jesus has sent his son. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? All right, good. I'm going to ask you to answer some questions here in a little bit. And so just know, I don't know if Aaron likes it when you scream out, but I'm okay if you yell out answers. You will not hurt my feelings. Okay, so we're going to start in John chapter 1, verse 35. It says, The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means Peter. So here's what I want you to see. It's it's not a hard story to follow, but I think you and I, we don't usually start Peter's story at the beginning. So this is the beginning of Peter's story. It starts with John the baptizer. He wasn't a Baptist, no offense, Baptist people, but he's John the baptizer. And so John the baptizer had his own disciples, one of which was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And so Andrew one day is hanging out with John and John says, hey, you know the Messiah you're looking for? That's him. He takes away the sin of the world. And so what I love about this is Andrew, sees the person he's looking for and he stops following John and he goes and he follows Jesus. And the first thing he does after he hangs out with Jesus for a little bit is he goes and he gets his brother and he says, hey, Peter, we found him. We found the Messiah. We found the one we're looking for. And so the reason why that's an important part of the story is because it tells us a few things about Andrew and a few things about Peter, that Peter was curious about who Jesus was. Because notice his response wasn't, oh, I don't care that you found the Messiah. I'm not interested. Let me go do my thing. His response was he goes and he follows his brother and he says, hey, let me meet this guy that you say is the Messiah. Let's go check him out. And so what you see is Peter is curious about Jesus, curious enough to go check him out and see if he is who he says he is. And then they have this really weird first introduction, right? I don't know how many times this has happened to you, but when you meet someone, you don't think of them changing your name. And so he meets Jesus and Jesus changes his name. And so here's why I tell you that story, because my guess is in a room this size, there are some of us who are like Andrew, where we're following people who are telling us about Jesus. But what I want to encourage you to do today, this morning, is if you are an Andrew, I want you to be exactly like Andrew. And what Andrew did is he followed this guy who would tell him about Jesus, but once he was pointed to Jesus, he stopped following John and he went and got Jesus. Does that make sense? See, I think sometimes what happens and why you and I don't always jump in the game is because I think we enjoy following other people who tell us about Jesus because sometimes it feels easier. So how would you know whether or not you're an Andrew? It's really simple. Do you spend more time listening to other people talk about Jesus, or do you spend more time with just you and Jesus? If you spend more time listening to sermons than reading the Bible and asking the Spirit of God to speak to you, you're a little bit like Andrew and John the Baptist. If you spend more time reading books about Jesus 
but not actually spending time with Jesus, you're a little bit like Andrew. Now, here's the thing. I want to be honest with you. There's nothing wrong with being Andrew if that's where you're at in the process, but just don't stay there. You've been pointed to who Jesus is. Stop following the Andrews and the Johns and go find Jesus. Because that's what Peter does, right? The difference is Peter goes and he says, oh, you found the Messiah. Let me go seek for myself if he really is who he says he is. And so he starts to check out who Jesus is. And then this is the next part of the story. So look down John chapter 2. You've heard this story, but you maybe haven't related it to Peter. John chapter 2 verse 1. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his, what's that word? Disciples. So notice, it's already calling Peter a disciple. So if you read the whole context, Jesus had gone and he found Peter, he found Andrew, he found Nathan, he found Philip, he found some others, and they're starting to follow Jesus. So already they're referring to them as disciples. So they followed Jesus to this wedding. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we pick up Peter's story. His brother says, hey, we think we found the Messiah. Peter, being curious, he goes and he says, okay, let me go see. And so he starts to follow Jesus. It's already referring to him as a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And so he would go and he would follow Jesus. Now, if you read the greater context of the Gospels, what you'll be super obvious is that Peter goes and he goes fishing. And then he goes and he spends time with Jesus. And then he goes back to his life fishing. And then he goes and spends time with Jesus. So at this point... He is still curious about Jesus, but I want you to see he's curious enough about Jesus to hang out with him and then go back to his life and hang out with him some more. And I tell you that because my guess is in a room this size, some of us find ourselves in this part of the process where we go and we're curious about Jesus. So we go spend some time with him, but then we kind of go back to our own life. We go back to our job and our thing and our agenda And then we go back and we spend some time with Jesus, and then we go back to our thing. Now, there's nothing wrong necessarily with doing that, but that's not Jesus' ultimate will for you. He wants you to see who he is. And so what I want you to see is the next thing that happens to Peter is Peter witnesses the miracle, and I want you to listen to the words of John. He says, Jesus manifested his glory. How did he do that? He performed this miracle. It was a manifestation of his glory. So in other words, Peter says, man, this is not normal. Right? Like, I don't know what kind of magic tricks you have, but that is not normal to take water and transform its substance. And so in doing this, now Peter moves from just a guy who's checking out Jesus, not sure who he really is, to now it says he has believed in him. What does he believe? He believes he's the Messiah. You see that? Peter was curious about Jesus. Peter starts checking out Jesus. And now he's completely converted and it says that he has placed his faith in Jesus. So why do I tell you that? 
My guess is some of us, that's where we are in the process. That we are kind of figuring out who this Jesus is. We think he might be the Messiah. We're not sure. And so you might be in a place today, this morning, where you need to cross over to the faith side. But I want you to notice, how did Peter get there? He didn't get there because he went to a bomb Bible study by John the Baptist. He didn't get there because he believed his brother's testimony. He got there because he spent time with Jesus. And in Jesus' good and perfect timing, he manifested his glory. And so Peter believes, not because of someone else's faith, but because he saw Jesus do what Jesus does. I think a lot of us in the room, if we're being honest, we kind of feel like, man, Jesus doesn't really show up like that. I haven't seen Jesus do anything like that. Now, I'm not sitting here saying he's going to perform a miracle for you, but what I am saying is if you and I are going to actually jump in the game, we're not going to get in the game of making disciples if we don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. And we're not going to believe he is who he says he is if we don't get to see him manifest his glory. So I don't know what you think of when I say manifest your glory. I don't mean you have to see a miracle. I just mean that there should be something that Jesus does in your life personally where he becomes this thing that you trust because you have seen him. I'm amazed at how many Christians leave the faith, and I would argue part of why they're leaving the faith is they never really met Jesus. They had people tell them about Jesus. They believed because of other people's faith in Jesus, but Jesus himself did not manifest his glory in a way where, like John 3 says, they were born again, that their dead spirit has been rejuvenated. So why do I say all of that? Because I think you and I need to be honest with where we are with Jesus. It's okay to be in a place where you say, I'm not really convinced. And I look around at the world and I see a bunch of craziness and I'm not convinced that God is good or God is true or God is this. But what I want to push you towards is, do you believe what you believe about Jesus because someone else said it? Or do you believe what you believe about Jesus because he said it? Because the two are monumentally different. Peter doesn't believe in Jesus because of a Bible study. Or he doesn't disbelieve Jesus because of a pastor falling from grace. He believes Jesus. Because Jesus manifested his glory. Does that make sense? Okay. But that's not where we're going. So now I want you to look at Luke chapter 5. All of that is context to get to this. Luke chapter 5 verse 1. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. So not a rhetorical question. Do you think Jesus knew whose boat was whose? Yeah. How do we know that? Because based on the context, he's been hanging out with Peter. He knows that Peter's a fisherman. He knows that Peter goes and he hangs out with Jesus, and then he goes and he fishes. And so... There's clearly something very specific Jesus is wanting to do. And so he goes to Peter's boat because he wants to do some stuff in Peter. Okay? Here's my second question. What was Peter and the other disciples doing when Jesus pulled up on the scene? Did you catch it? They're washing their nets. Why is that important? Because he's saying they were done fishing. Okay? All of that's context for this. Look at verse 4. 
It says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. According to Peter, how long had they been fishing? All night long. So, do you think Peter knows where to go fishing at? Yeah. Think Peter's done this like hundreds of times? Absolutely. So I want you to see this. So Peter, he applies all of his wisdom, all of his knowledge, all of his time, all of his energy into catching fish, and it gets him nothing, right? Isn't that what the text says? Some of us, I think, we are trying so hard to do some things, and then the reality is all of our wisdom, all of our effort, all of our time, all of our energy is really not giving us results, just like Peter. But then Jesus comes along and he tells Peter what to do. And I love the way Peter does it, right? Like I think of teenagers with this where he's kind of like, okay, well, it didn't really work. Um, I tried it. You're going to find out that it's not going to work, but because you said so, right? Like you can kind of sense even in Peter, he's like, bro, Jesus, if you only knew, I, I guess you're Jesus. Like I'm a professional, right? You ever done this with Jesus? Like, like Jesus, if you, I know you think you're omniscient, but like if you knew what I knew, right? And so what does he do? He just does what... Jesus tells them to do. And what happens? It says they catch such a large quantity. So you and I, I think we kind of get lost with this. So uh, I think it's still there, but somewhere in Israel, they have this museum and they think that they found fishing boats from about this time. And so this boat would be about 27 feet long at its deepest point. It'd be seven feet deep. How many boats did they fill? Two. That's a lot of fish. If you're talking about a boat that's 27 feet long, seven feet deep, that is a massive quantity of fish and they don't fill one boat they fill two and they don't just kind of fill the boats like if you read it it says they filled the boat so much that these boats began to sink and water was coming into the boat here's what I want you to see Peter tries all night long he uses all of his energy all of his effort all of his wisdom all of his skill and it produces nothing and then Jesus shows up and he gets results why do I tell you that because Jesus can do some things you and I can't do And so it begs this question, what are you trying to do that Jesus is trying to say, man, just let me do it. Just let me do it. See, I think some of us, I mean, we're trying to get this life to go the way we want it to go. And we're trying to produce some things. And the whole time Jesus is sitting there like, man, if you would just surrender to me, man, I'll get you the results. I'll do what you can't do. And so I want you to see Peter's response. So he sees all this. The other disciples see this. And what does Peter say to Jesus when he looks at this catch of fish? You remember? Don't look at me. It's in your Bible. What does Peter say to Jesus? He says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, that's a very weird response, if I'm being honest. Jesus hadn't talked about his sin. Why does he feel sinful? Right? So here's how I know that Peter's not an American, besides the obvious. Because let's be honest, if this was you and I, and we just got this massive sale that went through, and now we just reaped this huge amount of money, we are not thinking about our sin, right? We're like high-fiving Jesus. You are the man. Yes. I knew. I knew if I just followed you, right? Like, we are obsessed 
with what Jesus gave us. So here's how you and I need to not read the book. Like this is a Middle Eastern book. So here's what I want you to see. Because Peter's response actually makes sense if you follow the story. Peter believes in Jesus. He already knows who he is. But now Jesus performs this very personal miracle for Peter. So Peter is very much in awe of Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this with Jesus, but the closer you get to Jesus, especially when he begins to manifest himself to you, you are very well aware of your sin. You are very well aware that he is other than, he is holy, he is good, he is different, and you are undeserving. And so I think this is what Peter feels. He feels the weight of that. He feels the weight that, man, this guy is good, he is holy, he is God. I am sinful. It reminds me of Isaiah, right? Isaiah 6. This is not what Isaiah does when Isaiah sees the glory of God. And how does he respond? He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. So in other words, when I see the goodness and the glory of God, I'm very well aware of my sin. So in the journey with Peter getting to where he gets, I have to ask us this question. Do you and I really believe that we're in need of a savior? See, because some of us, I think, I think there was a moment when we thought that. And then we started following Jesus and we kind of think, I think I got it. I, I, I don't need saving as much as I used to. Like, like, I don't need you to really show up. Like, I understand how to read the Bible now. I understand when to raise my hands at the song, right? When the chorus starts taking off and they get loud. And that's when I stand up. That's when I sing, right? Like, we go through the motions. And so what I want you to see is Peter, already a follower of Jesus, he just becomes more and more aware of his sin, which means he's more and more aware of Jesus' greatness. And so I want to ask us this honest question. Whether you've been following Jesus for a year or 20 years, do you still believe you're in need of a Savior? Are you more in awe of his goodness and glory, or do you think, I'm just not that bad? In fact, I kind of think he's lucky to have me on his team. (laughs) And the reason why that's so important is because when we get to it in a second, you and I, we are not going to jump in the game that Jesus invited us to if we don't believe, first and foremost, we need saving. And we're not in awe of his glory. And his goodness, because it's very easy for us to make our Christian walk about our glory. No, no, I don't exist for God. He exists for me. He exists to bring me more joy and me more comfort. He serves my purposes. That's why my prayers are more about me than they are about his will, right? So I want you to see in Peter's journey to get where he got, he was fully aware, even after a believer, man, I am in need of saving. And so I want you to see how Jesus responds. So Peter's response is, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 9. It says, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. How did Peter respond to Jesus? Not a rhetorical question. How did Peter respond to Jesus? He said, I'm a sinful man. How does Jesus respond to Peter? Did you catch it? Peter says, I'm too sinful. Get away from me. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge he's sin. He says, come closer. Come closer. I meet all kinds of people, and what constantly amazes me is how much sinful people think Jesus doesn't want to be around them. That's how I know they haven't read about my Jesus. That they've followed 
a pastor or a church or a man who says Jesus doesn't like you because. And I want them to see Jesus doesn't even acknowledge your sin. He says, come closer because he knows he's going to take care of it. Part of why I think some of us in the room, if we're being transparent in our heart, why you and I have not jumped in the game that Jesus has invited us to is because we think we're unworthy. We think our sin has disqualified us. And Jesus is saying, stop talking about your sin. I've already taken care of that. Come closer. And so what did he invite him into? Because this is important. Did, not a rhetorical question, did Jesus invite Peter to become a disciple? Yes or no? No. He already has been a disciple. The text has called him that. In Luke 5, he refers to him as master. Contextually, we see that there are times where, Jesus is fo- or where Peter is following Jesus. So if we're defining the disciple by someone who follows Jesus and learns from Jesus, Peter has been doing that. Not full-time, but part-time. So I want you to notice, because I think this is one of the greatest deceptions going on in our hearts right now, is you and I think the greatest calling on our life is to follow Jesus, which means to know more about him and to try our best to obey him in our personal lives. That is not the calling God has on your life. That's the means by which you get to the calling. The calling that God has on your life is like Peter. He says, from now on, you will be what? Catching men. Peter, I want to take you from being someone who just follows me part-time to turn you into a fisher of men. Like, I have a mission for you. That's why he calls them apostles, sent out ones. He says, I want you to not be someone who just learns about me. I don't want you to be someone who just tries to obey me. I want you to obey me in all things. And obeying me in all things, the ultimate look of that is what? To be a disciple maker. You want to know why most of the world is perishing and going to hell? Because most of us as Christians think the crescendo of our faith is knowing more about him. It's not. It is actually obeying him and making disciples. The church is not growing in America. If anything, it's shrinking. How can that be so if we have so many disciples? Because we have believed the lie that the crescendo of our faith Is following Jesus, not making disciples. And it's not. That's an unbiblical idea. He says, Peter, I want to turn you into a catcher of men. So what's the invitation on the table today? For you to be a catcher of men. For you to go to places in the world, in your city, in your family, in your work, and tell them about Jesus. And not just an evangelism. He didn't say just go and convert them. He said go make them disciples. And so I've been asking myself this question. Do I really believe that the call of my life is that I would use everything at my disposal to help people far from God be close to him? Not a theoretical idea. Do I believe that that is the biblical command of God? And so I just want to lovingly tell you because I'm affectionate for this church. It means so much to me. And so I want you to be in the game. I don't want you to sit on the sidelines. I don't want you to drink the Kool-Aid of American life that says, man, just go and try to be like Jesus. Can I just tell you, Satan is not scared of you learning more about Jesus. In fact, he'd rather you just keep learning about Jesus. He's scared of you actually obeying Jesus. 
Even Jesus himself, he doesn't want you to just be a learner. How often throughout the Gospels does he say, man, you are a fool if you just hear what I say and you don't do it. And you and I, we've stopped at our personal obedience with the Lord and we haven't extended that into disciple making. So this is fascinating to me. If I asked you what are some things that are, what are some sinful things in your life that you need to repent from, right? You're going to come up with things like um, maybe lying, maybe uh, you're not loving certain people as much as you should be loving them. Maybe there is even deeper and darker stuff. Maybe there's some sexual immorality or various things. You want to know what's never, like honestly, I've been doing ministry for a long time. You know what I've never heard someone say they need to repent from? The disobedience of not making disciples. Is that not equally a command of God? Does Jesus not start by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples? I find lots of people who want to repent from sinful behavior, but none of us want to repent from the sin of not making disciples. Is that not a sin? Did Jesus not command us to do it? And what do most of us do? We kind of put it on this scale. Okay, if you want to be an awesome Christian, go make disciples. But if you just want to be a Christian, you just pursue Jesus and try to learn about him and do the best you can. And I want to invite you into the story of what Jesus is doing on planet Earth right now. On planet Earth, he is drawing men to himself. And he's using ordinary people like me and you. And he says, man, I want you to get in the game because most of the world is perishing. And I want you to make disciples. So how do you and I do that? How do we go from just being a believer in Jesus and a follower of Jesus to a disciple maker? Verse 11, look at what Peter did. It says, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. One of the next greatest lies I think God has to put to death in American Christianity is that you can follow Jesus without giving anything up. You never see him say that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The more you read what Jesus says, the more he says, you will give up this, you will be persecuted, you will be taken before governors, you will be made much of for the sake of my name. And what do we do in America? In America, we have said, no, 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 I can be rich, and I can have a great family, and I can have all the comforts in the world, and... I can follow Jesus and be a disciple maker. I don't have to sacrifice anything. Once again, that's an unbiblical idea. He says, no, no, no. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. You want to follow me? Hate your mother, your wife, your kids. You, you, you want to follow me? Take up your cross. Be prepared to die for my namesake. And so what I want you to see is how are you and I going to leave just believing in Jesus and become disciple makers? Notice it's not become more knowledgeable about Jesus. That's not the answer. It's not you and I need to do more Bible studies. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have enough to start making disciples today. So I'm not against learning and growing in the Lord. I'm just saying stop using your lack of understanding of the scriptures as an excuse to not do it. So what is it that we need to do? It says Peter left everything. Now keep it in context. What does that mean? Peter went from being someone who sometimes went and fished and sometimes following Jesus to leaving his job so that he could full-time follow Jesus. Am I asking you to give up your job? No, I'm not asking you nothing. I'm asking you to ask the Lord what he wants you to do. 
Because usually with a text like this, we say things like, no, he's not going to ask me to give up my job. How do you know that? Have you asked him? Maybe that's the very thing he's going to do. And some of you, he's not going to ask you to give up your job. He's going to ask you to do your job differently or to do it for different reasons. But my point is, he's going to ask you to give up something. And so the ultimate thing is stop being a partial follower of Jesus and be all in. So here's what that looks like for Matt Thickman. Is do I wake up in the morning and do I pray, God, you have my whole life today. That I exist to serve your purposes in the earth. I don't exist for my agenda. I don't exist for my comforts and my pleasures. I exist for you. And so whatever you want me to do, no matter how inconvenient or uncomfortable, there are days I wake up and I do it for like an hour. There are days I do it for 20 minutes. There are days I don't even ask the question. But that's, for me, what that looks like. What does that look like for you? Contextually, not a rhetorical question. Based on the story we just read, what did Peter give up besides his job? He gave up the catch of fish. You notice that? He gave up the catch of fish. This is another reason why I know he's not American. Because, it, because it, if we had just got this huge lump of money, right? The very first thing we're thinking is, okay, man, let me, let me buy my house. Let me set up my kids for success. Like, let me do all these things, and then I'm going to follow Jesus. Let me cash in with this and go follow Jesus. But notice, Peter just says, no, no, no. I, I don't want that. I, I want him. And so I, I love to ask the question this way. Would you rather have the gifts of God or would you rather have God? A lot of people want his gifts. I don't think that many of us want him. See, Peter understood that the giver is better than the gift. And so he doesn't just give up everything. He gives up the very thing that Jesus had just blessed him with because he understood it's not about that blessing. It's about following the one that's filled with those blessings. And so what is the Lord asking you to give up? And so just so there's like no confusion, right? So it's like, hey, I tuned out for part of this sermon because you're weird or whatever. Here's what's happened. Most of the world today is going to go to hell. And my assumption is, which is a big assumption, my assumption is you and I would say with our mouth that we believe in Jesus and we want to follow him. So the question on the table is, what is he asking you to give up to take up his ultimate calling of making disciples in the earth? What does that look like in your family and in your friends? So I'll end it this way. When I was about 20 years old on staff at this church, we brought in this missionary. I don't remember exactly where he was from. I think somewhere in Africa. And he asked this question. I was sitting basically right there where Mr. Granberry is sitting. And at the end of his sermon, he asked this question. He said, has God called you to go to the mission field? And I sat there, and what was fascinating to me about that question is I never even considered asking God where he called me. Like, like I was a believer in Jesus. I was on staff at a church. And what blew my mind when he asked the question wasn't so much about the mission field, but was the fact that I had never even thought to ask Jesus, where are you calling me? Do you want me to give up my life as I know it and go to a different city or a different country for the sake of your name? I never even thought to ask. And so right then and there, I asked the Lord, Lord, where do you want to send me? And with the utmost conviction, 
I felt discerning in my heart that he said, no, no, I don't want you to leave and go to another country. I want you to stay where you are. You're going to be in America for the rest of your life. And I'm going to take you where I want you, and I want you to help people to know and love me. So why do I tell that to you? Because I think most of us have never even asked Jesus the question. What do you want me to give up so that I can follow you? Where do you want me to go? Do you want my life to be lived in Dubai, in Iran, in Nigeria? Do you want me to stay here in Dallas? Do you want me to go across the street? Do you want, like, like, what do you want me to do? And so that's what I want to ask you this morning. Where is Jesus calling you? Because what is unequivocal is he is calling you to be a disciple maker. To say he is not is to be unbiblical. So then the next question is, where are you calling me and what do I need to give up to get there? Does that make sense? So I mean, I want to just lovingly pray and ask the God to make that clear to you. I want to pray that you would not feel condemned or convicted and that we would not turn this into like this elitist thing. But that with the grace and mercy of Jesus, we could see that he's invited us into a story where he's actually going to use crazy people like us to help them be close to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything better to do with my life than to help someone experience the goodness of God that I've received. So I'm going to pray the band's going to come and we're going to be done. And so my, as I pray, I just want you to listen for the spirit to speak to your heart and see where is he calling you. So Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in the room. I pray that you would encourage us to take up uh, just the call of disciple making. I know that a message like this, it's real easy to turn into condemnation and feel like we're not living up to a standard. And so we just ask for the grace of your spirit to show us what do you want us to do? What does that look like? What do we need to give up or sacrifice? There are people who are far from you and we don't want them to be far from you. So God, I pray that you would grant us repentance today. Repentance from thinking that the greatest sin we've committed is some kind of immorality when in fact it might just be that we have disobeyed you in making disciples. God, I know some people in the room, they don't even feel like they're worthy or capable of making disciples. And so I pray you would encourage them and help them to know that they have been endowed by your spirit to do that, whatever that might look like. I pray that you would just speak clearly more than anything else, that we would not be confused about what you're saying and what it is that we need to give up. So Lord, we love you and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.